everybody and welcome to our new episode of Relative Pitch. Today, I'm so excited to have Dr. Ryan Kelly, the Associate Director of Band at UT Austin. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here and looking forward to talking with you all. Absolutely, absolutely. So first things first, kind of tell us a little bit about yourselves and how did you get to where you are today? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll try to give the, the big broad brush overview. Um, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area in Northern Virginia and um, was I, I, my early music experiences included everything from piano to church choir to one whole year of violin from which I remember very little um, and then playing the clarinet in high school band. And then later in my high school years, I decided I really wanted to learn percussion. So I started taking percussion lessons as well. Um, that all led me to get my bachelor's in music education at Florida State. And from there, I went and I student taught in the Orlando area and then uh, got a job at Lakeland High School outside of Tampa for two and a half years, uh, first as the associate director and then took over as the director of bands. And then from there, I had the opportunity to go back to Tallahassee um, to teach at Lincoln High School. And while I was at Lincoln, uh, during those four years, I started and uh, finished my master's degree at Florida State while I was doing the full-time teaching thing, which I recommend to nobody. I don't, <laughs> I don't know that that's a great idea, um, but I, I, I live to tell the tale. And then from there, I uh, was blessed for having the opportunity to come here to UT and uh, work with my now friend and colleague, Jerry Junkin. And after my DMA, went back to Florida, kept ping-ponging over the Gulf of Mexico, back to Florida, and uh, spent a year as the Associate Director of Bands at the University of Central Florida. And then at the end of that year, had an opportunity to come back again to UT and join the faculty. And I'm now on my uh, seventh year at UT, and I've worn many different hats during those seven years. Um, I came in as Assistant Director of Bands and Associate Director of the Longhorn Band uh, and Director of Longhorn Music Camp, our summer music camp program. And then uh, during the 18-19 school year was asked to step in as Interim Director of Orchestras. Our um, orchestra director retired uh, kind of suddenly at the end of the previous year. So they were looking for a, a kind of a one-year interim to get us through until we could do a search for um, a new conductor. And then uh, the following year was asked to step in as interim director of the New Music Ensemble, which I uh, thankfully have had the opportunity to continue. And that's still a part of my job now as the permanent director. Um, and then so now my job scope is uh, director of the New Music Ensemble, associate director of bands, conductor of the Wind Symphony. And I'm in the first year of a two-year appointment as associate director of the Butler School of Music. Um, again, kind of stepping into a vacancy at the end of last school year. Um, so yeah, so that'll that'll be uh, a part of my job this year and next year also. Wow, that is so, just a lot of things going on. <laughs> it's a lot. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. And so it's funny because uh, your time in Florida, you're lit where I am currently, that's exactly where you were. Um, right. Because I am literally right outside of Orlando and you were here right. student teaching and at UCF, which is like down the street. So like, right. it's, it's very funny how everything kind of moves. And so what made you go from Northern Virginia all the way down to Florida State? Yeah, great question. I um, was attracted by two things, really. One was the clarinet teacher, Frank Kowalski. Um, and my my clarinet teacher in high school just really admired and, and uh, respected Dr. Kowalski and, and the, the work that he'd done and also his students. And so he's like, this would be a great um, situation for you. And I said, okay, great. Um, and then also it had a reputation for being a great music education school. And that's, I knew I wanted to teach uh, in some capacity. To be really honest, I had my sights set kind of early on on conducting like I in, in high school, I became very enamored with orchestra and wanted to become an orchestral conductor. And then when I got into college, that kind of shifted more to the band wind ensemble side and I got enamored with that. And so, um, yeah, so so really clarinet and music ed are, and, and also I was just really excited at the prospect of being in Florida for somebody, you know, who has cold winters and everything and snow in Northern Virginia, I thought Florida sounds great. Um, so I was just excited about that as well. I can relate with that. But then when you get to Florida, you're like, oh, 
Florida is not di- not the same. It's definitely <laughs> it's, it's a little different. Yes, <laughs> it's a little different. And I thought Georgia was crazy, but oh my goodness, no, no shade to no my shade. Floridians that are are watching. Just yeah, right. we right. learned hell. We learned hell. I have a, a question about because I'm I'm not a conductor. This is more Anthony speed. I think actually both both Michael and Anthony being or were being they were drum majors at some point, so they had a lot of experience oh, yeah. at that. Um, you, you having a lot of different hats in terms of marching band and also wind wind band conducting and then also or, like orchestral. Like how do you or I guess how do you like move through and uh, between and like you know what sure. what bleeds over and what is very distinctly different between all of those ensembles. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, um, it's it's funny you brought up drum major. I kind of skipped over that part. I was high school, drum major in high school, drum major at Florida State also. So that's that's definitely a part of my background as well. And I think um, particularly in college, you know, I was just so set on the idea of being a conductor that the earliest possible opportunity to be a conductor was meant getting up in front of the marching band. So I was like, seize the opportunity. And I started trying out for my freshman year. Um, yeah, I, you know, but I'll, I'll kind of, take your question and apply it to the more recent years in that when I really sort of kind of I did the year with the orchestra and then also new music ensemble which is you know one and a part woodwind brass strings kind of like a chamber orchestra type uh, situation the um in terms of the repertoire I mean that's such a huge part of it right just knowing the music and knowing how the the writing works for that set of instruments and that's whether you're dealing with pieces that are 400 years old or four days old I mean that's such a thing to navigate that that's a whole course study unto itself and that's a thing that I'll be honest with you like I felt less equipped to handle as well as as I would have liked to maybe during my orchestral year. Um, but I kind of jumped into that with very little notice. That was sort of like, okay, we need you to kind of get us through the year and jump into that. And that's that's an area that I tried to work really hard at getting better is how to how to speak to and and help strings and, and what do they need from me as a conductor? Because um, that was something that up to that point I hadn't had a lot of experience with. Um, but then, you know, I think one of the one of the things that that still I think gets me motivated as a conductor, one of the things that I really get excited about is working with new music or new compositions or um, just music that people haven't heard before and bringing new voices into the conversation. And so particularly through the lens of new music ensemble and through the bandwind ensemble world, that 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 seems like a little bit of an easier lift right now, right? Because we're not burdened with hundreds of years of repertoire and expectations that, you know, oh, we've got to play these excerpts because these are the excerpts that the, you know, we've got to cover in the course of our four-year time at a university. Yeah, I, I, have, I have opinions about all that. But, but you know, band and, and new music are really, I feel like my calling because it's an opportunity to keep, moving things forward. I think, you know, music is going to move forward, whether we we uh, encourage it and allow that and, and push it that way or not. And um, that's that's what I really love about it the most. I love that. So, I'll let Michael go first. Oh, I was just going to piggyback off of that. I love the idea of a new music ensemble. We didn't have one in our undergrad, and we do have one here at Western uh, Michigan where I'm at, and it's starting to ramp back up. And I just love it because it's like, push it and we I think we had this conversation like three weeks ago is like compared for the orchestra compared to the wind band the wind band is far more progressive in its repertoire as of late yeah and it's being pushed and pushed all the time and I think it really started like really with like John Coyano Circus Maximus and when's gonna go all Michael Colgrass and since then it's mm-hmm. been like boom we're gonna start doing a lot of art music but in some people's eyes, it was like, it's still like when band is academic, we're going to still throw that over there. But I love the new music ensemble because it's like pushing it even further and adding strings, adding percussion, adding electronics. And I was wondering, like, what have you seen the benefits of your students participating in that ensemble as well as other traditional ensembles? You know, it's interesting. I think the, the maybe the largest benefit I can speak to is that um 
students who might be a little bit more on the skeptical side of, ooh, these extended techniques and you, you want me to do what and what kind of sound and, and, you know, what is this quarter tone notation and stuff like that. You know, we encounter those things more frequently in new music than we do in orchestra or band. And it pushes people out of their comfort zone. Um, and I love that. You know, I, I love that, that we, when we're used to, very predictable orchestral or band music that has that sounds a certain way and we know how you know, we hear this phrase and oh yeah there's that's going to resolve this way we you know defying all those expectations and being forced to kind of embrace something a little less comfortable that's part of the joy in it for me I think that's a lot of fun um but you know the the payoff the, the beautiful part of it is watching students be skeptical at first and then kind of get really bought into it like okay that was actually a lot of fun that was really cool and that performance was um pretty amazing so opportunities to kind of maybe change people's minds or, or broaden their perspective a little bit that's that's mm -hmm. one of the things that i value the most about um the new music ensembles the opportunity to do just that yeah, that's interesting. So I'm gonna I'm taking us more to a to a musicologist and ethnomusicologist standpoint mm -hmm. for a moment. So um, in one of my classes, we read an article about you know this the idea of if an um an, if an extraterrestrial landed in a music on a music campus, they'd be able to tell um like kind of what is held in a very high regard there. What that you know they would be able to say, oh, this culture must be really big into this because I'm noticing this a lot around the campus. Sure. And it's interesting because when we think about um, I'm thinking more film scores right now and like uh, TV, mu like TV show mm -hmm. music and things is that music is supposed to really represent what is kind of going on right during the time if it's a period mm -hmm. a piece like if you're looking at things where you see powder wigs and really big hoop skirts and all this you're gonna expect to hear like violins and strings and you know sure. very harpsichord even um, and then you think about okay so now in modern times when we're making like shows and films that are supposed to be set now it wouldn't really make sense to hear like a an orchestra necessarily playing like these older pieces, right? It would make more sense. It makes more sense to hear the popular music, right? And also to hear new music. And so it's actually interesting that new music, I feel like it, even those new music ensembles are still put as like a very like niche sort of thing within music schools where I think they actually represent society more like accurately than the larger ensembles do at this moment. So I just wanted to know what you would think about or what you think about that idea of it reflecting society at the time, you know? Sure. You know, and that's that's a really great way of kind of framing that, I think. Um, the I go back to a conversation that I had with Jerry Junkin right at the time that I was sort of stepping into the new music ensemble role. And um, it, was, it was actually very much along these lines, like what is re reflective of now and maybe equally as important, what's going to survive? Like what's going to make it the next 100, 200 years? And, you know, he shared with me his perspective, which was, he said, you know, I think orchestras have made it this long. They're probably going to continue to survive in some form, even though, you know, they're threatened economically and there's lots of challenges and uphill battles there. But the orchestral thing has been around for so long, it's probably going to continue to be around. For wind ensemble, I hope it's going to keep keep being around. You know, we're we're still kind of early days in the, in the wind ensemble movement writ large. I think so. Hopefully, there will still be wind ensembles in three hundred years. But new music, because of its flexibility, because of its adaptability, and because of what it is and its job is really to reflect the music of now, not to reflect the music of 20, 30 years ago or or three hundred years ago like it has the potential to always be relevant. It has the potential to always be something that we do if we foster it and continue to grow it in that particular way. Um, you know, and, and, and for, for some context, our new music ensemble, we generally err on the side of performing some larger things like octets and above because just because it's easier to kind of, we have this, this course, we have this way of marshalling larger groups together as opposed to, you know, if somebody wants to perform a new quintet or something, well, it's easier to find four friends to play with you and do a, a contemporary quintet. So we try to do larger things to create opportunities for that music that's written for groups of people that you might not be able to just assemble on a whim to put together a recital. Um, so we have a little bit of a scope in that regard. We're, we're looking at the number of people or the, the instrumentation, but that's kind of it. Like the, other than that, the doors are wide open. We can do anything or we can, you know, we can 
um, decide to, in, we're, we're getting ready to do a concert at the end of this semester. Um, it's a collaboration with our electronic music studio where they're going to do a fixed yeah. installation and there's going to be uh, some, some electroacoustic pieces like it's, it's really an interesting space to just kind of reimagine what uh, music can be um, because there aren't the, the limits and the boundaries that we have around our more traditional ensembles. And so when we talk about new music and, and some wind ensemble newer music, um, the discussion has always kind of come to diversity of mm -hmm. the actual program. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that, about wind ensemble diversity programming and then the new music diversity programming? Because I think we've talked about this extensively on this podcast about sure. how um, specifically a couple episodes ago, we talked about orchestras, how they released a statement after um, the 2020, you know, very political unrest and then the Black Lives Matter movement. Now it's that we're going to program, you know, diverse music that represents you know, culture and everything. But then we look at their um, their their performances this year and it looks the same as it did before. Um, and so that was just a blanket statement. So how, how are you um, really dealing with that and when ensemble new music diversity of programming? Yeah, thank you for, for the opportunity to kind of talk about this a little bit because it's so important. The you know, I, I will I will say that from the the wind ensemble perspective, first of all, you know, I think the wind ensemble community in in the large scope maybe is is quicker to embrace the idea that we have some work to do here, that we are not at a place that really represents all people and and from a from an equity lens uh, in the way that we really need to do that. So I'm grateful to be in that company as a wind ensemble conductor because I think there's a lot of important conversations happening happening in spaces like this, but also you know in in meetings where we're deciding on what repertoire to be added to prescribed music lists or or you know what what kind of programming um, is really appropriately representative where can we where can all of our students have an opportunity to see themselves in the music that we're putting which on their stands which is the curriculum of the courses right um so that from the wind ensemble lens i am i'm encouraged by the work that we're doing there but recognizing also that we've got more work to do um for me for for new music ensemble i think about it um in my particular situation at ut i think about it from a lens of where are we putting our resources as an institution? Like, so the new music ensemble goes hand in hand with some funding that we have available to bring in composers mm -hmm. for residencies, to do some things and to maybe, you know, beyond just actually programming um, music with, with an eye on diversity, equity and inclusion, but also bringing people to have contact with our students and to actually interacting with them because um, unless we're being intentional about the composers that we program and sharing their stories with our students, maybe they don't get to know that person or what, what their lived experiences and, and, and what maybe brought them to this piece of music. So um, trying to be more mindful about that. And I'll, and I'll be, uh, I'll be honest with you right now, we're kind of in a position where we're still sort of uh, dealing with the after effects of the pandemic year last year, where we didn't have uh, a lot of performances and, and we, we are making good on promises to, to composers and to projects that got delayed as a result of that. So it, it's, it's funny that, you know, two years ago, this month was when I gave my first concert as the new music ensemble director. And next month, I'll only be giving my fourth concert as the new music ensemble director because of what happened last year. So I will, I'll, I'll say that, you know, this is still something I'm thinking about because I haven't yet quite had an opportunity to do some of the broad thinking about what do I want the course of the season to look like? Who are the people that mm. we want to engage with? What artists do we want our students to know? Um, and that's that's sort of um, how I'm looking at my my long term plans for that group. 
largely based on people like I, I who are people that that my students should know and if I'm doing my job correctly that list that roster is going to represent a diverse uh, cross-section of the musical field so that's how I look at it I try to just sort of see the person behind the music and then you know that's that th maybe we play this piece but that's a way of my students getting to know that person and and their voice so that's that's where the obligation comes in you just said something so important and I think we've also talked about this too, that um, seeing the composer and what they meant when they wrote this. And I think we've talked about this, not a negative light, um, but it's something that we've noticed, especially when it's music not of the high regard, such as Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, that when it's something more contemporary or something like, say, I always use the example of a spiritual. Most people sure. program a spiritual as being the end of a program. That's just a fun piece, but never really uh, get to know the composer and why they wrote it this way and what um, what are they trying to say? What is it actually meaning? I mean, especially in a lot of spirituals, it is really kind of reflecting the Black church, but not a lot of people take time to really understand what actually happens in a Black church. What do they sound like? What are the big instruments? What are, what are their, you know, the vocalists are supposed to sound like? And so doing that background research and seeing the, like from the composer's view, I think is very, very important. And you just said like, that's like one of your big things about doing music. Yeah, and you know, there, there's there's a wide range of, of, you know, how much you can potentially invest in um, bringing a composer's voice into your rehearsal room. On the low end, it's spending a couple minutes to talk about that person when you introduce the piece or read the program right. to the ensemble. That's easy and, and, and low buy-in and everybody should be doing that automatically. That's that's a given. But then on the high end, you've got, I'm going to spend my money to bring this person to our campus to interact with my students, or maybe I'm going to actually participate in a commission of music from them, because this is a voice that my students ought to know. This is somebody with a story that, that has the potential to be impactful for them. So I want them to hear and have that whole experience. So, you know, recognizing that everybody's circumstances are different and everybody's resources are different. I get that, you know, not everybody can write a check and bring somebody into their band hall or their orchestra room, mm -hmm. but there's, there's lower and less frankly, expensive ways of still buying into what that composer has to say and sharing that with your students. And that, I mean, to me, that's that's become, I think, even more critical when we look at things through the perspective of are we doing enough from a diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective? Because, you know, Anthony, you hit on an important point about um, when it comes to, when we program a concert, you know, what is the core or the 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 center of that program and what is the fun piece or what is the added on thing how we center different composers music and their voices matters a great deal especially when it comes to equity because we you're right that we we uh, historically speaking haven't done always a great job of say if there's a spiritual on our program centering that and talking about where that is what that is and where it came from and and we we can do a lot better with that if we would just pay attention to what what it is that we're centering and what does it look like it's not a matter of yes i'm checking the box because i've got composers of different backgrounds on my program what do you make important to your kids what what it, what about that program do you make important to them? What do you get them to buy into? Um, and that's where I think we we stand the potential to gain a lot of improvement uh, in the way that we see our programming through an equity lens. Yes, 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 yes. And we're all just like, yes. I'm, 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 I'm trying to, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> I completely agree with everything you just said. And that's been something a very big part of like what I've been trying to push recently. Cause I look back like the last year I was in Georgia, I started, uh, me and a school started a chamber music program. We had four brass quintets, which is a lot. And that was the first time ever doing chamber music there. That's and awesome. I'm looking back on that and I'm like, wow, I did not pick the right composers. I did not bring in the right guest. So recently I've been like, okay, the repertoire selection is just as important as who you bring in 
for your kids to see. Because if your kids do not see themselves making a living or making a lifelong career of it, how will they ever know they can? Besides mm-hmm. you, one person be like, you're good at this. No, like, look, he, in this, he sat in that chair yeah. and he put in the work and now he's out there doing it. And that's been like a huge thing I've been trying to push. Like we can like, we can program Viet Quang, we can program Adolphus Hellstork, we can program George Walker, who always gets forgotten about. Oh my God. I've just, oh, I just had a huge debate about this the other day. George Walker. Uh-huh. But like you can program all these people, but if you only bring in like your traditional cisgender white men or like, like guest artists, okay. Then how do they know they're going to be able to have a career in this and make it their life's work? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I love that you said all that. Well, and I also love from an educational perspective, I can just mention, Michael, you just opened the door to something super important, which is talking about chamber music, because, you know, when we if there are band directors, uh, orchestra directors listening to this podcast that have, you know, are, are thinking about this through the lens of what they program with the large ensemble. Yes, that's important. But if we're also doing chamber music, then you've got even more opportunities to put some some names and some voices in front of your students. Um, and that just multiplies your ability to kind of re- represent the, the broad spectrum of musicians that are out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, something huge we always talk about on here, but it keeps getting brought up because it's, I mean, it's just relevant. It's gonna continue being brought up as visibility and representation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's different of being able to relate to something, but also being able to see yourself within the music that you play. Um, and then what Michael brought up about the, him looking back and, you know, the, with not being really, you know, happy with how, what he was programming at that point. Yeah. I can, I can go back and look at most of the recitals I've played in my life and go, wow, yikes. <laughs> you know? sure. And, sure. and it's not necessarily that the music I, I played or programmed or were pit, chosen for me were, you know, necessarily like not worthy of being played, but also it brings this point up that there's so much music that is worth being played that isn't for a lot of different reasons and uh, music that we have most likely lost forever because of different restrictions of publishing um that were happening you know in in the past and other things and um the idea of like standards really bother me now um sure. and it's, it's becoming a thing that i understand i understand that we always want to compare everything to something which again i think is a, a problem in itself um, to try to make one core thing and then say, okay, if it doesn't reflect this, then it's not worthy of being programmed or being played or being studied. And I think there's, there's a problem with that. And even, and the idea of core, the center of a program is really important because yeah, you can say, I put a piece by William Grant still on the program, but if you put it in a, you can tell, you can, you really can tell when it's like, we just did it to check a box off versus no, we're going to honor this music. We're going to talk about why this music is important and all of the, the historical notions that are within the music and the traditions of this person. You can tell the difference between those. Um, and it's becoming a really big thing of, um, and it, I think you, you hinted at this earlier when you were talking about uh, all the things you have to learn in the four years bachelor's, you know, all the excerpts that you would have, you have to, why? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I question this idea of why do I have to do anything? <laughs> like, yeah. Well, you know, well, I and, do what I want. <laughs> right. Well, and, and, you know, I'm glad you brought me back to that because if it wasn't, if the implication wasn't clear before, I question that too. <laughs> so I'm right there with you. Um, you know, actually, something very seemingly small but actually kind of powerful happened about a month ago. Um, we had, as we always do at the beginning of the fall semester, our placement auditions. And it was clear to me. So over the course of the summer, our graduate assistants work with our applied faculty in the various studios to assemble the list, the list of excerpts that they're going to play. And sometimes it's, you know, some standard excerpts and it's a mix of maybe some rep that's programmed for the fall. And then, um, or maybe it's just some other excerpts that the teacher would like for their studio to study. So they put it in the audition packet. Um, it was a couple of my colleagues very clearly had intentionally thought about, okay, these are, this is in many ways, the first piece of music I'm going to put in front of my students this year. And rather than every composer start with a B, Beethoven's Brahms, you know, all that sort of stuff, I'm going to include composers that 
I'll, I'll be honest, I had to look up some of the composer names for some of these excerpts because there are people that I didn't know. And then, of course, I see this excerpt and I get curious. I'm like, well, I wonder if they have a website, you know, maybe they've written something for new music. And I realized that's exactly how this is supposed to work. I got curious because our applied faculty said this person is important enough to put in front of my students. And yeah. now I'm learning more about that student. I'm not even taking the audition. So just like little things like that inside of, you know, the larger music higher education world, little things like that can go a long way because it's, it's, that it's, it's what I was talking about before. It's that equity piece. What are you centering? What are you making important? And if it's an audition excerpt, then you're making it important. So be thoughtful about who you're putting into that packet and who you want your students to study. I loved that. Yeah. Um, and on that, um, specifically when you, when you said about the equity and making those pieces uh, it's like spark. I love going to a concert where I have no idea who any of these composers are. And I'm like, sure. all right, let me get like really wrapped up in these program notes. Where is this from? Who is this person? I love this piece. Let me go back and then let me, again, find their website. Let me find a, maybe a piece that could fit my band, my ensemble. Maybe let me just do that. I love when I go to a concert. And so I think growing up in um, uh, high school, that's what I thought college choir and band was going to be, where I was going to get to college and we're doing some like very avant-garde, like I would have never thought about this type of True. music and these composers I've never heard of. Then when I actually get to college, I'm like, well, I know this person, I know that, <laughs> I know yeah. this music. And so I think as educators, we, I think it's, it's time for us to kind of rethink we have to get away from how we were taught and start to teach who is in front of us. And who yeah. is in front of us, they are not like how previous generations were. They're not. True. They can tell you firsthand from teaching from 12, uh, 12 year olds all the way to 18 year olds, they are not. And so they want something that will keep their attention, that will, will be something that is meaningful to them. And so we have to find those composers who are doing that. Because uh, we talked about how on in orchestras and I guess classical music in general, how our our numbers are going down. Like people are, are not showing up as much. And it's because are we reflecting the current generation that should be in our audience? Are we really doing enough work for that? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a, a, a great question. I I and I think the implication there is that maybe we're not right now, and we have some more. We have some work to do. Um, the you know, if I just going back to the idea of programming for a second, I have always uh, I think tried to sort of just because of my own personal in, in, in my personal biases, I guess, always tried to approach programming from a place of being a little bit eclectic, a little bit of a variety, a little bit of a, of a something for everybody kind of a, of a approach to programming. And maybe the more recent evolution of that is I've, instead of just thinking of pieces that fit that criteria, thinking about the people, about the composers who, who might represent a broad cross section of people that are writing music for wind ensemble or new music ensemble. And how can then I take those voices and find representative pieces of theirs to fit together a puzzle that makes a nice program. But the the, the personal aspect of that, and I, I we've talked about this already, so I'm kind of hammering this home, I know, but the personal aspect of who is on your program, um, thinking about them as peoples and not just as the source of these notes that are on the page, but thinking about who they are and what brought them to this piece. I think that can be a really useful way for those of us who are trying to figure out how to make uh, programs that we that will reach our students, that, will, that, that our students will see themselves represented, all those things. That's a useful way, I think, of kind of maybe approaching that task. Like that. Um, and so I think for um, students who are going through now who are just like, I am just so frustrated. I don't see myself in music. Um, this just doesn't feel right. And it really starts to take a toll on their mental health. Um, and I remember uh, your session at the UT Conductor Symposium, and we had a whole conversation about mental health and in music. Um, so can you talk about that a little, how we got to protect ourselves, our mental state going through music? 
you know, we've all, of course, um, I don't need to tell you or anybody listening to this podcast, we've all kind of survived this 18 month collective trauma of, of going through this pandemic and, and all these other things that have, have had such impactful, um, well, just impacts on our life, just, just sort of made our, our normal everyday existence no longer normal and everyday. And, you know, particularly last summer during the workshop, Anthony, where we first met the, the, the opportunity to talk and address the fact that so many people were contemplating leaving the profession or contemplating, like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Um, that, that seemed at the moment, like, this is the perfect time to be talking about this, but you know what? that perfect time is also now because it's we're, we're we're now kind of back to this place we're recording this here at the end of September and we're back to this place where a lot of our day-to-day activities look like they did before the pandemic but yet we still have a pandemic going on um and so we're having to adapt with all of that as well and I have I know so many people whom I respect and admire in my life who have kind of drawn a line in the sand and said, you know, this, this is as far as I can allow this to go. Like I have to protect myself. Um, I want to see my kids grow up. I want to be home for dinner more than two nights a week. Like I want to do these things. And, and what this profession is asking of me is too much. And it, it, on one hand, it breaks my heart to hear that. But on the other hand, I am so in admiration of these people for having the courage to stand up for themselves and protect their mental health, protect their space um, and do what needs to be done. So one of the things that that I think about a lot is our sustainability in in our professional paths and and kind of our resilience to to you know survive and thrive through a, a challenging times. You know, I said back at the very beginning, I would recommend doing a master's degree while teaching full time to nobody. And I think about, you know, just that experience and how that was like burning the candle at all five ends all the time. I I would never put myself through that again now. And for two reasons. One, because I know a lot more now about the fact that it's okay to set boundaries. It's okay to, to, to know where your limits are and to be clear about those limits. Um, and two, just I, that there's no need for that. <laughs> there, there's not a, there's not going to be a prize awarded at the end of your career to the person that made themselves the busiest and that tried to do the most. So yeah, I, I, I don't have a great, you know, answer to what do we do about this, but I think continuing to have conversations where we acknowledge that it's not just important, it's essential that everybody takes care of their own personal well-being, that they are are doing what they need for themselves. And, you know, I'm trying to be mindful from the perspective of higher education that, and I, and I, I know you all are aware of this, there's this idea out there that becoming good in anything requires a certain level of hazing or, or difficult, you know, barriers that have to be crossed in order to be good at a particular thing, which we all know isn't really true. And it's just sort of this passed on trauma thing that we see all too often in, in higher education. And I think that, you know, I, it's something I try to be mindful of, you know, if I'm going to ask our graduate students in conducting to do something to help me out, is that something that, um, I would, you know, be willing to do myself? Is that something, you know, if I might, Am I assigning them tasks because these are tasks that they will learn and grow from and that will be beneficial to their experience? Or is this a task where I'm just, you know, I don't really have time to do this and therefore I'm, I'm shoving it off my plate. And I try to be very mindful about not doing that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so I, I think I think with an eye on the, the idea that we want students in this profession to find ways to have fulfilling and happy careers um, we've got to be careful about how we, how we present that to people and how we, how we, what we ask of people. And, and I think, um, it's, that's something we're all learning how to do better right now, because I think people are more willing than they used to be to speak up for themselves and to say, no, actually, this is where my boundary is. And, and I support, applaud, and encourage that. But also I have an obligation to, to, to respect, um, trying not to get to that point where somebody has to say stop right and so that's that's yeah it's 
it, it's a it's it's a struggle. It, it's it's not an easy thing to do, but it's it's something that's absolutely important to do. It's absolutely worth it. Yeah, I we we have a, a a phrase on here that we say all the time: uh, booked and busy, right? And that oh, that's gosh. that's our big thing. And we 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 say it usually whenever we have someone on or we're talking about all the things we have going on or someone's like, yeah, I have this, I'm doing this commission. doing, And it's great, right? It's wonderful to see like our people, our colleagues who are able to have all these opportunities um, to impact the communities they're in. Um, but at the same time, I think, and we had an episode on this last season about balancing um, your life and how, how do you find that balance? And there are some days where I'm just like, yeah, I'm just, I know I, I should practice that concerto. I just don't think I have the mental capacity to do that right now. Or I feel like if I do that, it's going to be like, I'm going through the motions, but I'm just kind of like, kind of blank stare ahead. Right. Yeah. And um, it takes a lot of mercy um, and understanding to get to the point where you can just say like, it's okay if you do that. And I remember, this is the funniest thing last semester. I don't know if they remember this, um, but I, was debating there was a class project or it was a paper like we had to do this one paper for this class and i was it was a rough week where i just there was so much piling on so much piling on and i thought to myself and i went if i didn't do this one thing everything would be fine and then because then i started i looked at the syllabus and i was like okay like we get two missed assignments. I had not missed an assignment before then. All the assignments I did turn in, I got like A's on it, right? But I remember, I think I called Michael. I think I like texted him in the group chat or we had a project or we were recording that day too. And I was like, does it make me a bad student if I don't turn in this one paper? And like, I was like having a whole mental crisis of like, oh my gosh, I don't want like, my professor to think that I'm being lazy or whatever, but I feel like I'm going to break if I have to read this 100 page article and then to write a two page paper on it like by tomorrow like i was like i don't think i can do it i think i would end up just halfway through it just being like nope nope no nope, and being in a worse place than i and so it's it's hard and like it's you know we, our teachers some of them i think in their, their syllabus is like we understand this is a very hard time that you're going through so let us know if you need help but then some of them are like okay but also make sure you still read this 200 page article by next week love you kisses um yeah. it's, it's a it's a balance right and it's it's yeah. interesting and being a also a, i have my students myself and i am also still a student and so it's, it's put me in interesting places where i've seen myself giving mercy more to my students than even myself um, which is very interesting. So I wanted to know how you, you know, how you feel about that, that balance aspect. Gosh, I, I feel very seen by everything you just said, because first of all, I mean, I can identify, I go back to grad school in my mind and I think of exactly what you just said, like, this has got to be great. And if it's not great, they're going to think less of me. And what's going to happen if they think less of me. Yeah. And, you know, the bottom line is that I think, and I, I hope I'm right about this, but I do think that in large measure, um, professors, teachers are are more um, compassionate than than they're sometimes made out to be through the lens of the syllabus, right? Um, so I, I I hope that I come across that way to my students, but um, you know, part of this this whole musician's mentality, we get we get built into this idea of competing and being the very best from our very earliest days in music because whether it's getting a superior rating at solo ensemble, whether it's being first chair, whether it's making all state, you know, this, this particular activity, uh, and this is a whole nother conversation, of course, but this, this, this built in aspect of competition, even if you are a teacher that tries to de-emphasize the competitive aspects of your program, that tries to make it a more, um, you know, your success is not determined on, on how well you rank or how well you place. There are still those parts of it that are built into it. And then we carry that on with us. And, and like in grad school, like now, where, where it's like, oh, I, I can't let this professor think poorly of me. I've got to be on top of my A game all the time. That's at some point, we've got to cut ourselves a little bit of a break. I mean, that's, that's a lot to put any of any person under. And especially for all of us, and I'm, I'm making some assumptions, but I think there are assumptions based on some truth here that we all learned this early on, and that we carry this with us into other aspects of our life. And we're really, really driven to want to succeed. Um, but, you know, at some point, and, and this is a thing that I would say that we all 
well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say we all, a lot of us have room to get better on. And I'll include myself in that, that category that knowing where it's okay to set a limit, knowing when it's okay to say, yeah, I'm actually not going to make it to that thing, or I'm not going to be able to have that to you by today, but I'll get it to you by tomorrow, that sort of stuff. And, and I, I, I don't know my, my perspective on this, maybe, and I think some of this is the pandemic, but my, my perspective on this has, has shifted very much to being in favor of air on the side of being compassionate and understanding and air on the side of it's, it's fine. It, it, it'll, this is music. This is not open heart surgery. We'll get there. You know, right. it's so I, you know, we also, and I should probably go here next. We, we, we have this idea that rigor built into our programs, like things being difficult, things being hard and things potentially stretching you to your max sometimes that means good. That, that's a representation of quality, right? That's a signal that this is a good program and that this, this is a good class. And, and we all know that that's just not the case, right? We're, we're, we're becoming more uh, familiar with the idea that that's just not the case, that rigor does not always equal quality. And so, you know, I, I, I was in my early days as a high school band director, I was the guy up at school on Sunday afternoon, you know, planning for my classes the next week because I felt woefully inadequate to be able to find the time during the day amongst the emails and the teacher meetings to do that. And then at some point I just said, this is stupid. I can't do this. I can't, I can't, I can't give up all of my free time for this job, which I love. I love this job, but I can't, I can't let it be all consuming because then I'm not going to show up and be good for my students on Monday if I didn't get a break from being in this room all weekend. So Yes, 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 yes. Oh my goodness. You now I feel seen. Finally, somebody <laughs> that is not of like, you know, round me have said that because, you know, um, I just actually had this conversation with Shiree. Um, we had mm-hmm. uh, coffee the other day, and that's exactly what we're talking about. Um, you know, you got you cannot sacrifice your time it, because that is a time where you either get recharged or something whatever you know makes you 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 got to have time to do that because if you don't when you get there on monday you're angry at the world you're angry yeah. at the kids you're angry at the music you're angry that somebody left your door open that was me. I'm just like, you know what? I'm just so angry right now. And right. It's because, you know, I cannot, I, I've learned this, especially during COVID. I cannot just, even though I want to dedicate my entire life, my entire time to mm-hmm. being here. And so I feel seen when you said that. Oh my goodness. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, you're welcome. And, and you know, I'll add one more layer on top of that because we're all so connected in this world right now. We've got all of our various pieces of technology. One of the most, uh, I might've talked about this at the conducting workshop. I can't remember if I did, but there's this documentary on Netflix, The Social Dilemma. I don't know if you've all seen it. If you haven't, check it out. Um, but it talks about the ways in which our technology and our social media manipulate our attention or draw us in and kind of not not the central thesis of that but sort of what I took away from that was okay maybe my email notifications don't need to make a sound on my phone or maybe you know I'm so addicted to killing those red bubbles on my icons maybe I just need to turn them off like maybe I don't need my attention and my bandwidth to be taken up on somebody else's uh, schedule or, or based on somebody else's needs when that email drops into my inbox. Maybe I can create the space to where, you know, I'm gonna get through the next three hours, do these things I have to do, and then I'll check my email because I am I am terrible at getting easily distracted. And and when, you know, a ding goes off or I hear the new the new mail sound or, ooh, what was that? You know, I, I, I have a hard time holding myself back from doing that. But learning to be better about that is one of the ways in which I've helped kind of protect my time and by extension of that, my mental health, because it enables me to actually step away when I say I'm going to step away from something. So uh, it's a work in progress for me, but that's something I'm getting better at. <laughs> I think this whole semester after COVID is all about creating boundaries. Like over the summer, I completely turned off all of my notifications. Mm-hmm. No sound went off on my phone. 
And like these two would call me and then I would miss it like two or three times and I'll get back. So I'm like, Hey, and they're like, why'd you miss my call? I said, I didn't hear it. Cause I literally turned it off. Right. And like, I don't like my laptop is associated with school and work. Mm-hmm. So it stays at my little GA office that Western's given me every day. does go. not go home with me. Good it stays you. here. When I leave here at six 30, I guess that's what's been left that day. If yeah. I didn't get done between seven and six 30, it ain't supposed to be done today. And that's yeah. it. Absolutely. And and there was a band director uh, who I uh, was a mentor of mine early on in my career who's still teaching in Florida. Um, Lee Sellers, he's a, he's a middle school band director in St. Augustine. And I remember him uh, preaching the gospel of at 4 p.m. It's over. You know, the, the rest that did not get done that day will get done the next day, but I'm going home like it's over. And you know, as a young professional who's like trying to be successful and doing whatever it takes to be good, like that kind of went against the grain, but he was right. And he, he's, he, he's yeah. even more right now than, than I knew. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's so important. And before I, I feel like we could talk to you for hours and hours and I know we're at our time, but that's all good. you know, that's the thing where I think when we, especially me as an educator going through college it was always told to you make sure you do everything you can it does it it shouldn't matter you should get it done you should get it done everything should be done and then now I'm in the profession and I'm like look it wasn't done it wasn't done it will be look and it's okay the world has not stopped spinning on its axis Exactly. And if you, whoever sent that email or need an answer, if you cannot take 24 hours, then maybe you, the person you need to talk to is not me. Okay. That, that's just it. But, you know, it's good. It's well, good. you know, no, knowing that we are kind of wrapping towards a conclusion here, I do want to say, you know, I think it's important that everybody kind of holistically looks at your own situation and, and decides, okay, here's here's what I know I need to do to be good at this, but here's also what I don't need. And this is what can go. This is, this is what I can let go of. This is what I can move on from. And this is a huge way of maintaining your viability, your future in the profession. Because if you, you know, are going 300 miles per hour for the first 10, 20 years of your profession, then you hit a wall and you're like, I just can't do this anymore. This is too much, you know, maybe it's too late at that point to turn off the notifications or to stop answering the emails. So I think this is something that from an early stage, it's okay to, to, to establish those boundaries and to find, you know, what is the space that works for you. And by doing that, you're actually protecting, you know, your longevity in this profession and, and being able to be successful. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, it has been so good and honestly therapeutic just speaking with you for this I, episode. Oh my for goodness. me too. This has been great. I, I am so, I thank you for creating the space for these conversations because this stuff is important. It needs to be talked about more. Thank Absolutely. you so much. Absolutely. So, and for everybody, please, that is tuning in, please, 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 uh, please in the comments, just thank Dr. Kelly for being here. It was so good for, to see him. Oh my goodness. Uh, but for everybody else, please um, check out all of our episodes. We're definitely going to have Dr. Kelly back, so don't worry. But you can find him. Um, where can they find you, Dr. Kelly, so that they can follow you and maybe ask questions if they have questions? Sure. I am hit or miss on Facebook. Sometimes I get fed up and I delete it for, for periods of time. So that's not <laughs> a good one. Um, but anybody's welcome to email me. That's probably the easiest way. It's rsk at utexas.edu. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And audience, we will see you next week. Bye.